Amen. Amen. Man, welcome in, whether you're joining us uh, in person or online. Man, we are so thankful to have you worshiping with us uh, this Sunday. Man, I, I want to say from the bottom of my heart, man, thank you for so many who poured in many, many hours, a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of energy to pull off uh, our Easter service last week. Man, we had more people than we've ever had at Lindsay Lane North that set a high watermark for us, which is exciting. But what's most exciting about that is over 400 people heard the gospel of Christ presented. And so, uh, man, I, I'm just excited to be able to do that. Uh, that is not uh, easily done. If you work that, you know that. Uh, setting up those spaces, setting up those kids' spaces, man, all the things that happen in that. And so, man, I just want to thank you from the pastor's heart that uh, when we cast the vision, this is what we wanted to see, kind of to tear down that barrier that might exist from somebody coming into a church. Uh, and we wanted to meet them where they're at in the community and, and kind of throw back to that. Uh, I just thank you so much for buying in and for investing. Man, we have a great, great and blessed church. So uh, we enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. We also enjoyed the nap afterwards. <laughs> uh, but uh, but it, was, it was great. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. So this is a continuation, a old New Old Series. Uh, we are uh, tracking through the Gospel of Mark. In November of last year, we began in Mark 1 through 7, and uh, we were talking about the Gospel according to Mark and talking about Jesus' ministry to the multitude. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, uh, was in what we call a, the Galilean ministry. He was walking, he was walking around, going from place to place, town to town, doing some pretty spectacular things. He was performing miracles. He was performing healings. And he was teaching in a way that nobody had ever heard anyone teach. He was teaching with authority. He was teaching with such authority that the words that he was saying, he was putting on equal footing with the rest of Scripture, right? With the Old Testament writings. And so he was writing in a way that, or, or speaking in a way that nobody had ever heard of. To put it in today's terms, Jesus in the region of Israel had gone viral. Gone viral. Now I can remember when I was in college, first being exposed to this word. A video went viral, and I remember sitting in my dorm room, or not in my dorm room, excuse me, in my dorm, in the lobby of my dorm with about five of my friends around, watching a video that we just had to see. See if y'all remember this. Yeah, Charlie bit me. 2007 was when it dropped. Yeah, 
2007. Y'all remember getting that? Y'all remember seeing that? Probably got it emailed to you, right? Texted to you, whatever. I don't know. Was that, I don't know. If, yeah, I guess we could do that at that time, right? Uh, but the, one of the very first videos that ever on the YouTube platform to go viral. Right, And that started a trend that we are still tracking to today. So you, did you, you had to have a cute kid, right? You had to have a cute kid with a cool accent, and they had to say something really cute, and that was a way to make a viral video. Well, that's not the only way. You see, because there was a man from South Korea who used a music video to ride an imaginary horse into viral status. Open Gangnam Style. If you ever done that dance before in your life, raise your hand. That's what I thought. Some of y'all lying. <coughs> Some of y'all are lying. Mm. Yeah, dancing in front of the most random things in the world, leading people to the conclusion, apparently anything goes viral. Anything. This was released in 2012 with 21 million views on that original page. And here's the thing, man. That doesn't even count all the remakes, all the remixes, all the dubstep versions of this. I mean, it goes a long way. But in case you're wondering, it's not a video that has to be made across the world. In fact, in 2010, we experienced a video with 80 million views. Actually came from a news story in Huntsville. So y'all need to hide your kids, hide your wife, and hide your husband because they're raping everybody out here. The attacker got loose and went out the upstairs window, but he did leave something behind. We got your t-shirt, you didn't left fingerprints and all. You are so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. A crime scene investigator photographed and dusted for prints on the lid of the garbage can and the window pane and ledge. Dodson says he's never seen the perp before, but sends this warning to whoever is responsible. You don't have to come and confess that you did it. We're looking for you. We, we going to find you. I'm letting you know now so you can run and tell that, homeboy. Homeboy. <laughs> Anybody seen that video? Yeah, me too. Uh, Huntsville's claim to fame, right? The Space and Rocket Center and Antoine Dodson. Uh, you know, I don't know what goes viral. If I did, I'd have a lot more money than I do now, right? Uh, but going viral, right, is about getting the likes, getting people to laugh, making that appeal. Uh, Antoine Dotson in Huntsville is one of the top 10 most viewed videos in all time in YouTube. Uh, incredible to see how things take off like that. In 2010, 80 million views in Huntsville, Alabama. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. Despite Christ's popularity, Christ came performing miracles. He came doing healings. He came teaching in a way that nobody had ever witnessed before. And in doing that, he gained a ton of fans. 
He multitudes came from all around to see what Jesus would say, what he would do, who he would heal, what food they would have to feed the multitudes, right? They came from far and wide. He had a significant fan base. But as we studied in chapters 1 through 7, this was not the ministry that Jesus was driving at. Jesus wasn't concerned with getting likes. He wasn't concerned with comments. He wasn't concerned with getting followers on Instagram. Jesus was concerned with developing followers, right? And so we see a, a switch in emphasis from ministry to the multitudes in chapters 1 to 7 in the early part of chapter 8. We see a shift that happens in Mark 8, 27, where it's a paradigm shift where Jesus begins to invest in ministry to his disciples. And so today we're going to look at the framework of a follower. The framework of a follower. He, he in essence, in this, in this entire passage, provides an outline that he's going to teach over and over and over to his disciples as he invests in just a few. The shift, however, comes as Jesus asks an important popular culture question. Let's look first at Christ's confirmation. Christ's confirmation in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, here's the question, who do people say that I am? This is a pop culture question. This was a viral sensation motivated question. What do people, who do people think that I am. And so how did his disciples respond? He, they responded by all the things that they had heard, all the popular comments on YouTube underneath the videos, right, if you will, of all the things that all of these casual fans of Jesus had said. They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. These are not bad things. In fact, unless you are the son of God, these are really good things. If somebody associates me with the company of Elijah and John the Baptist, man, that's big time, right? Jesus says, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? This question is the ever-important question that every single person in this room must ask. Who do you say Christ is? You're not going to get to heaven on the faith of a friend, faith of a grandparent, faith of a parent, faith of an aunt or an uncle, faith of a sibling. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. Father, you are the Christ. Let that be the theme and the fuel for everything that happens after this point. I pray that it has been the faithful fuel of everything that has happened to this point. But may you receive glory as the anointed one of heaven. May you draw people to 
yourself. May we live in such a way to exalt the anointed one of heaven, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who made a way for us to get to you. Father, may you flavor everything that we do. In your name we pray. Amen. So Jesus asked for a rundown, right? Popular opinions of the day regarding who he was, right? He, the, his disciples didn't go to the Pharisees. These are not negative things. He didn't say, well, some say you're a heretic. Well, some say you're a liar. Well, some say that you're a fool, right? He didn't say any of those. He was, they were just compiling the data of the people they'd been running around with. These people are like, hey, when's he doing fish and chips again? Like, what's on the menu tonight? Like, what's he going to bless and break, right? Those that were there for their benefit, their own benefit, hey, Meemaw needs healing, you know, let's go see Jesus, right? These are the people that they had polled. And those people had said, man, he is one of the prophets. He's Elijah. He's John the Baptist, right? This is a great guy. While these things were overwhelmingly positive, they were overwhelmingly and completely wrong. Jesus was not John the Baptist. He was not Elijah. He was not one of the prophets. These opinions would have been held by Jesus' fan base, not his enemies, but they were still wrong. They were walking in proximity to Jesus, but they had missed who Jesus really was. And so Peter confirms it. Who do you say that I am? Peter, as the spokesperson for the disciples, look it up throughout Scripture. That happens a ton. Peter talks for all the disciples. We'll see it in just a minute in point two, right? He says, you are the Christ. It's not enough that you're a good teacher. It's not enough that, that you're a healer. It's not enough that you're a miracle worker. You are are the chosen one of heaven to save Israel, to save us from our sins. You are the Christ, the Messiah. And we don't really, we don't see in Mark's account, Mark was probably written mostly from the perspective of Peter. He probably drew most heavily from Peter in his understanding and perspective of the gospel. And so really when we look at the gospel of Mark, it's, it's from Peter's perspective. Peter doesn't tell us exactly what went on after that, how the conversation continued, but Matthew 16 does. Matthew 16 tells us how Jesus responded to what Peter said. Listen to what he says. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Man's opinion of me will get you to Elijah, will get you to John the Baptist, will get you to a really good guy, but man's opinion will not get you to you are God. That is a line, that is a connection that can only be drawn vertically. My Father who is in heaven has told you. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are tons of interpretation for what 
this means. The Roman Catholic Church took it to mean that the person Peter would be the foundation of the church. And so all that they built on, the, the priesthood, right, was built on this idea that Peter was the intermediary between God and man for the church, right? And so I believe that is an incorrect interpretation. I know it to be an incorrect interpretation, right? But that's what they took it to mean. There's other interpretation that believes that he says, look, you are Peter. You are Petros. You are a small rock. And on this rock, Petra, large typically used for large rock formations. While it could mean small rock, most of the time it meant like a cliff or a boulder, right? On this Petra, I will build my church. So you're small, you're insignificant, but what you said, big boy, is huge. I am the Christ. I am the son of the living God. On this foundation will I build my church. He could have also meant that you are this little pebble. You are this little rock, and you have said this little saying, but this little saying, rather than a small pebble, will act as a small seed that will grow, that will flourish, that will create something incredible known as the kingdom of heaven. There is an inbreaking of a culture that is counter to any other culture that we have ever experienced. It is not physical, it is spiritual. On this rock, I will build my church. Because Peter believed God, what did it say? He said, my father who is in heaven revealed it to you. Because he believed God, this was divinely given to him by God and he believed it in faith. He was given a new identity. You are Peter. You are Petros, right? That had some significance and tie to the work that he was going to do through the church. He was given a new responsibility. On this rock, I will build my church. So I am putting you responsible. You are going to be building the church on this confession. And the gates of hell will not prepare. And you will have the keys to the kingdom. So not just a new identity, a new responsibility, but also a new authority. Right? You will have the authority of the kingdom of heaven. You don't have it now, but you will. What did Jesus say in Matthew? All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go ye therefore. Right? And so this is that handoff that he's talking about. Right? But there's a new task. Peter got it exactly right. And so in your notes, until we settle in our mind who Jesus is, we will always be unsettled in our obedience to him. The reason why we, don't, we are not obedient is because we lose sight of who God is. We lose sight of his goodness, so we try to make goodness on our own. We lose sight of his grace, so we try to achieve stuff on our own power. We lose sight of his mercy, so we think we deserve something that we don't. We lose sight of who God is. And when we lose sight of who God is, we are tempted to work outside the bounds that he has for our life. But he confessed him as Christ. Right? And so have we settled in our mind who Jesus is? Because if we settle it in our mind, it's going to find its way to our hands and our feet. If we've settled it in our heart, then there's no way that our body doesn't line up with that. There's no way that obedience is not the result of it. Because ultimately, what he calls us to is rarely going to be our preference. What his plans for our life is, 
I can guarantee looks different than your plan that you could arrive at on your own power, in your own flesh, in your own mind. God has something else in store for us, right? We find that because he's about to tell Peter, we're doing, I'm doing something different than you've ever thought we're going to do. I know how you've been raised, but this is not how it's going to happen. It's not how it's going to go down. I am the Christ. If you hold fast to that, then you can handle everything that I'm about to tell you. But if you miss this, then you've missed it all. In fact, there was such confusion about over what Jesus is about to tell his disciples that he literally tells them, don't tell anybody. Because you don't understand it. You're not going to get it. And if you start telling and spreading this, people are going to think that I'm going to be the Messiah the way that man wants me to be Messiah. And it's going to throw a monkey wrench in everything that we're doing. Don't tell anybody. You're going to be confused. And the others will be confused as well. Don't tell a soul. Don't tell anyone. We saw this trend in, in 1 through 7, right? That Jesus would have power and we'd see this messianic power and he'd say, don't tell anybody, right? Because of this misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And so let's look secondly then at Christ's confrontation. Christ's confrontation of Peter. Again, Peter the spokesman, right? I've said before, someone that opens their mouth as much as I do is, found, is bound to stick their foot in it more than the average person. And I do consistently stick my foot in my mouth, right? And so Peter, in the same way, he's a spokesman and he gets it really right sometimes. But literally two verses later, he gets it really wrong. Look what verse says in verse 31. And so he began to teach them. The one that Peter has identified as Christ begins to teach them what it looks like for him to be the Christ, for him to be Messiah. And this is what he tells them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Identifying himself with the suffering of the Son of Man of Isaiah. This had never been done before. They, they didn't uh, use uh, the, the suffering servant of Isaiah and, and related it to the Messiah. They had not done that in all of the teaching and the learning that they had received as Jews but the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, he will rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, there was very few things up until this point that Jesus had said plainly, but this he said plain. This they could grasp. This they understood. But this they had a problem with. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I just see sin nature in this, right? You ever gotten something so right, and then in the next second, man, you just, man, you blew it. Just blew it. How in the world could this happen, right? If I am calling somebody the chosen one of heaven, the anointed one of heaven, God's son, and all the ramifications that entails, and then two verses later, I am rebuking him, I am in a very poor headspace. Agreed? That's what he does. 
but turning and seeing his disciples. Now, Mark is the only one that actually records this account and records him seeing the disciples, telling us that Peter was speaking for all of them, right? He saw the disciples, and he saw all the disciples going, yeah, get him, Peter. Go get your boy. He's lost his mind. Like, what is he talking about? That's not what I learned in Sabbath school, right? When all we gathered around Miss So-and-so, and she began to teach us the, what was going to happen with the Messiah, she said that he was going to set up an earthly reign. She said he was going to be a great military hero. She said he was going to come in power and his kingdom would have no end on this earth. So talk to Jesus. Tell him he's crazy. That's not what we've learned. But seeing and turning, to, and see, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on things of man. And do you notice that rebuke? I mean, Jesus had a lot of cutting things to say to a lot of people. Jesus wasn't all about the feel-good messages, right? Jesus said things that were super controversial. He said things that were hard to grasp, hard to understand, and certainly hard to get online with. He called people broods of vipers. He called them tombs, whitewashed tombs that look good on the outside, but they're ultimately sepulchers full of dead man's bones. He called them hypocrites and liars, children of Satan, the children of God, Israel. He called children of the devil. He said mean things. But the worst rebuke he reserved for Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Sometimes it is most dangerous for us to claim an association with Jesus. It's not just dangerous for us, by the way. It's dangerous for the world. To claim an association with Jesus, but to try to dictate the terms by which Jesus is allowed to save. What do you mean by that? Jesus, I want your blessings in my life. I want your favor over my family. I want to see my family grow up. I want to see them thrive. But now if you call them to the mission field, to some far off country, to end the lostness in an unreached people group, well, you can't have them. Jesus, I want salvation for me. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to be punished forever. But instead of finding my hope in that, I still want to find my hope a little in this world. I still want to accumulate a little nest egg. I still want to set myself up for success. I want to love you, but I want to love the world as well. What was Peter doing? Well, he got it right. He's the Messiah. And he started dictating terms of his salvation. In your notes, salvation cannot be accomplished in man's power, so it can't be achieved by man's plan. You see, the, the Jews had the perfect plan by how Jesus was going to save Israel. The problem is the nations go to hell. The problem is the nations are outside of God's love forever. 
And God didn't come for just Israel. God came for all mankind. They had a plan, but you see, Israel did nothing to bring anything to the table that ever approached salvation, so they don't get to make that call. We can't come to Christ and then dictate our terms. It's not an exchange, it's a surrender. This is the trap that Peter was caught in. Because of his training, because the the Messiah was to be this military hero, because he was to set up an earthly reign that would never end, he could not swallow the fact that perhaps his prominence was very much in doubt. Right? I mean, if the Messiah was a temporary earthly hero, well, that means Peter gets a promotion. That means people come to Peter. Peter is a big deal. But now all of a sudden he's saying, no, no. The Messiah's going to suffer. The Messiah's going to die. Jesus, I saw this panning out different for me. And this was the nature of what he said. He allowed his flesh to get in the way. Here's what I can tell you about that. Uh, God's plan for your life is not going to be your own. But I can assure you that God's plan for your life is better. It's better. And you can believe that on faith or you cannot. And you can reject it. That's your decision. Or you can allow the truth of God's word to sink into your heart and life. And allow God. That, listen, it's not me that's going to reveal that to you. Just because you heard me say it doesn't mean I'm the one that reveals it to you. That comes from God. That comes through his Holy Spirit. Christ taught the Messiah was to save through suffering, not success. And in so doing, he was calling his followers. This is when viral sensations plummet, right? This is when being popular begins to lose luster. Because he said, look guys, it's not going to lead to you being public figure number one. It's going to lead to you being destroyed, you being sacrificed, you being laid down so that others could experience what you have. Listen to Christ's commission, Mark 8, 34 through 9, 34 to the beginning of chapter 9. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus just said, I'm going to die. The plan for the Christ, for the Messiah, is to die. You know what he's saying? And if you're going to follow me, the plan is to die. It's to lay it down. Lay your life, lay your pride, lay your reputation, lay the way people perceive you, lay, lay your success, lay your wealth, lay your fortune, lay your family, lay it down. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. This is the great paradox of Scripture. To hold on to things of this world while claiming an association with Jesus, but holding fast to things of this world will lead to your death. 
It will lead you to lose your new life because you've never had that life. You cannot come to God on your terms. And so if you have settled for less than surrender, if you've given God most of you, not all of you, he doesn't have any of you. If there are still things that you are holding back from him that he is not allowed to touch, then you are trying to save your mortal life and you are going to lose your eternal soul because you have not surrendered. He cannot be your savior until he's your Lord. And that's an all or nothing deal. And we come in humility to that. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. When did the kingdom of God come with power? When Jesus proved that he was who he said he was. When he rose victorious over the death, hell, and the grave, he gave us the power and authority. Right? He has all power and authority and gave us all power and authority. It doesn't happen a day in the future, right, when Jesus comes and puts an end once and for all. It's right now. Jesus has proven victory over the grave and he has given us power through his name. So what does this calling mean? Well, I want to lay it out theologically. I want to lay it out how scripture intends for it to be understood, and then I want to give you very practical ramifications for it, okay? In the same way Christ sought no power in this life, but he willfully laid it down, his followers would be called to service and sacrifice, not for power or fame. They were called to service and sacrifice. They were called to be a servant, not to be served. They were called not to prominence, but to poverty. They were called to lay down their lives. Jesus is warning them. What does he say there? This is, if you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. What's he saying? An in with me means an out with the world. If you're going to be in with me, if you are a part of this culture, if you are a part of this kingdom, if you are part of the kingdom of heaven, you are not of the kingdom of this world, and the world will hate you because it is not. You are not of it. You are alien from it. You're an outsider, and you'll be an outcast. And allegiance to me means a divide from the world, means a divorce from the things of this world. This is what the reality of following Christ is. Christianity is not just a side path or a tributary on the regular flow of life. It is a reversal of direction. It's repentance. It's surrender. <clears throat> so, in order to live the Christ life, it's clear from what Jesus is saying. Whoever wants to save his life We'll lose it. They'll give it up. 
because they believe in faith that the life that they have in me is better than the life that they have on their own. But it's a, it's a surrender. Nothing barred, nothing left unturned. So what does this look like practically? In order to live the Christ life, we must die to our own. That's the theology of it. What does it look like practically? We live in a world that popular culture, talk about things going viral. There's a teaching that's viral today that you need to stand up for yourself if you feel wronged. Don't let yourself be mistreated. Don't let people say bad things about you. You need to stand up for yourself. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't take that laying down. Right? Stand up for yourself. Let me be very clear here. You will find that verbiage nowhere in Scripture. Now, what I am not saying is that if you are in a situation where you as the image, of, the image bearer of God is devalued, that you need to remain in that. I'm not saying that you need to abide in, with abuse, that you need to abide in those things, right? I'm not telling you that those are situations that you need to continue in because God's called you to suffer. And so we need to understand that we're made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect. But for us as believers, to seek acceptance from this world is to devalue who you are in Jesus. And your primary calling in this life is not to stand up for yourself. It is to take a stand in God's word. And when we do that, if we take a stand on the truth of God's word, what does that mean? It doesn't mean we stand up for ourselves. It means we lay ourselves down. It means we sacrifice. It means we give of ourselves willfully. Are we being taken advantage of? Well, maybe. But I don't get my value from you. I don't get my value from the person that's taking advantage of me. I don't get my value from people that are over me. I don't get my value from people that are under me talking good about me. I don't get value from any of you. I get value vertically from my relationship with the, with the Lord, right? Life in Christ is indicated in the laying down of self rather than the standing up for self. Value is assigned, not achieved, there is nothing that you have ever done that has been valuable apart from Jesus. Now that hits hard, but it is truth. You know how the Bible says it? The best that we have is dirty rags, filthy, unusable rags. That's the best we've got. Don't stand up for yourself. God has called you to lay yourself down. Value, like joy and peace, are assigned by God. They are assigned by Him. Therefore, they are fixed. They don't change. Your value doesn't change with the way you act. Your value doesn't change by the way you think. The value, your value doesn't change by your circumstances. Your value is fixed uh, vertically between you and the Lord. It is given to us. 
He goes, God, God knows you're not valuable, but he gives you and assigns you value. You're made in his image. Though you've broken his image, he sent his son to die for you. You are worth it to him. And nothing else matters. So quit trying to defend yourself and defend the cause of Christ. Value like joy and peace are assigned by God, substantiated by the substitutionary death of Christ. That's the grounds we stand on. That's where our value comes from. And are realized through the indwelling Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit that leads you to that value. I know I have value because of the Holy Spirit's presence in my life. Outside of that, I'm going to struggle. Outside of that, when I forget that, I'm going to struggle with insecurity. Outside of that, I'm going to struggle with hurt. I'm going to struggle with people's opinions outside of those things. But when the Holy Spirit has shown me my worth because his presence in my life makes me valuable, nothing else matters. We don't have to defend ourselves because it's not necessary. In fact, this is our mission. In fact, we want to see others experience the value that we have realized through the cross that we don the posture of a servant. The reason we lay down our life, even against those that would seek to do us harm, even against those that are against us, those that are in the world, that their agenda is to deny us, their agenda is to hurt us, we lay ourselves down because they don't know value like we know value. And I want so much to see that value invade their heart and their mind that my my life takes the posture of a servant. I deny myself and I give myself wholly to their salvation. More than desiring to see the lost see me in a positive light, I desire to see them restored into right relationship with the Father. For them to see value the way that I have seen value. For allowing them to know in a very, a very efficient and a very effective way that they are valuable to God. We don't defend ourselves. We don't stand up for ourselves. We lay ourselves down to see others one into right relationship. Boy, there's something different about this person. There's something different about a person that won't stand up for themselves when they're being wronged. I lied about them. I stole from them. I hurt them. And yet they didn't hurt in return. I don't know about y'all, but that sounds like the culture of the cross to me. That sounds like what Jesus did. And it certainly doesn't sound like anything Alan's capable of in his own power. So who gets the credit when that happens? He does. If you have never experienced the value that you have in Christ, I would invite you into a relationship with him. He thought enough of you to send his son to die for you. He created you in perfection and you blew it. You blew it. You twisted that image of God 
You distorted it, you broke it, and God sent his son to buy you back because he thought that much of you, because he is that good and he is that holy. And he has made a way for you to get value outside of yourself given to you by him alone. And if you don't have that relationship, all that I've said and there's, you can't comprehend it. What's necessary for you is as Peter, as God has revealed it to you to respond in faith. God, I don't feel that. I don't understand that. But if you say it's available, I receive it. I lay down my life. I lay down what I desire. I lay down what I need. I lay down what I want. And I take hold of you because I trust you as my Father, as my Lord, and as my Savior. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If that's you and you need to respond to the hope of it's found in Jesus, I pray that you would do that today. This is the culture of the kingdom of heaven. It is counter, it is completely wonky to everything we would experience in this world. It's turned, it's actually taking the culture of this world and turning it on its head. Would you lay down your life today? Would you lay it down so that Christ can take your life and do in you what you could never accomplish on your own? Would you surrender? Quit trying to do it on your own allow God to make you new if that's you and you need to respond to the message of the gospel I don't care if you've made a decision before I don't care if you've checked a box or walked an aisle whatever other public profession you may or may not have made but if you've never done that if that wasn't the attitude of your heart if you weren't giving yourself wholly to a God that loves you you weren't surrendering all to him that's what I call you to today that's the relationship that I call you to begin today with him I would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ tell you what maybe you're here maybe you know that you have that relationship but man maybe your life has looked different than those priorities maybe you have missed somewhere gotten off track and distracted by the shininess of reputation of man. Maybe you just need to come and lay those things down. Lay that pride down and humbly follow Jesus. That's what Peter did. He made mistakes. But man, he got right. Maybe you need to get right today. Maybe you need to follow in believers' baptism. Show the world what God's already done inside your heart and life. Maybe you need to join what God's doing here so that we can help you learn how to live this way. Live for His glory above all else. Whatever it is, I pray that you would respond in this time of invitation. Father, have your will and way in our hearts and lives. We love you. Let us be different. Let us be different. Let us respond to you today. Let us not be concerned of value that we have on our own or do not have on our own power. Let us look to the value that you have given us through the cross. 
You are our substitute. And because we can have life in you, we willfully lay our life down. For whatever it is that you've called us to, whatever ministry, whatever work, you dictate the terms. God, I pray if somebody would be bold enough to respond with that radical obedience, I pray that they would come today and receive you as their Lord and Savior. Pray for others that need to do business. Lord, whether it's to come to this altar and to pray and lay things down, whether it's to make their seat their altar and to pray, God, I just pray that we would, you would have full reign in our hearts and in this place, in this time of invitation. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing?